The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. Turn with me. Let me just read the text first. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a letter that Paul wrote. It's actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, or two of his letters that he wrote, we don't have, at least this is the common understanding, that two letters he wrote to them were very specific, and he was dealing with things within the church, so it only went to Corinth, and it didn't become a part of the New Testament. So this is uh, his final letter that he's writing to them, and he's responding to some situations within the church. And let me just read this to you. I'm going to actually begin in verse 5, because this is a part of the book, the chapter we want to look at, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, for even when we were in Macedonia, they'd be like us saying when I was in Oregon, it was just north of where Corinth was a ways. Said when we were we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us this, your longing, your mourning over their sin, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, And now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer the loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, that is the sorrow that God produces, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. For although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you receive him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. It's very warm-hearted words, the words that may be confusing to you when you just fall into a context and you don't understand the flow of things. The context here is, uh, has to do with what Paul, the reason that he sent Titus to Corinth. He sent Titus to Corinth with a letter of rebuke. 
If you remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all, uh, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and for rebuke and for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Well, rebuke is something that is very important. I, I need rebuke from time to time. But please, I already have plenty of people that do that. You don't need to get on the team. But rebuke is when you tell somebody they're wrong. It, it, it's a very, it's a word picture. It's a word picture of confronting a person to the face and telling them they need to think differently than they're thinking. And so this is what Paul sent Titus to do, to take a letter of rebuke to the church at Corinth. Now that wouldn't be any fun, would it? That you're the messenger bringing the letter that's going to confront them. Let me, let me have you turn back into, to chapter 2 of, of 2 Corinthians, and you can see that what we've been looking at over the last few chapters uh, is because Paul was talking about the, this very issue that he's going to explain in chapter 7, but he stops, and he begins to talk about new covenant ministry. That is ministry under this new covenant that we live under, which is completely different than the old covenant ministry. If you've ever wondered why uh, in the Roman Catholic Church that everything looks so different than in a, what we would call a Protestant church, is that the, the Roman Catholic Church is based on Old Covenant ministry. That's why they have clerical robes. It's why they have a priesthood. And if you're not in the priesthood, you're not a priest. Whereas New Covenant ministry is based upon the New Covenant that came to us through Christ, and every single believer is a believer priest. You have access to God. In fact, you can pray for people and know that you have access to the living God and He hears you. And He's given you the Holy Spirit to fulfill this ministry of being a believer priest. So what Paul has been doing over these last few chapters is telling us how unique this new covenant ministry is and that all of us in Christ have received this ministry. All of us have been made uh, have been given this ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not an ambassador for Christ. We represent Christ. And so he's been, he's been going into all this detail. But the reason he got there was back in chapter 2, he began to tell them about why he had sent Titus to them to bring this letter to confront them over a sin in the church. And if you look at, at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 12, here's what Paul thought was going to happen, was what he wanted to happen. He, he sent the letter with Titus. Titus goes to the Corinthians, and he wanted them to get this letter before he came there face to face, because he wanted them to have time to digest this and think about it and respond. So he plans on meeting Titus at Troas, which if you don't have a map on your Bible, you won't know where that's at, but it's on the way to Corinth from where Paul is. And so he assumes he's going to meet Titus in Troas. But when he gets there, no Titus. So Paul, like many of us, when, uh, whenever we are involved in something like this, where he had to write this, this letter confronting them, rebuking them about a sin in the church, that he didn't want it to alienate them from him. He wanted it to cause them to come to repentance and turn from that sin and be reconciled to God. And so he was hoping that this was going to have a good effect. But if you notice in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened to me to, in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, 
But taking my leave of them, I went on into Macedonia. And so then from, from the next verse, verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. He begins to describe new covenant ministry. Now, why this is important is if you're a, a Christian, you are a new covenant minister. I mean, you may not have a ordination papers to hang on the wall, but you are a new covenant minister. You're a representative of Christ. And you have this this ministry of reconciliation. You can tell people how to be reconciled to God. It's through faith in Christ. But now, Paul, having gotten, having met up with Titus, he then writes a follow-up letter, and he basically wants the Corinthians to know how much peace it gives him to know that they had received this letter in the way they should have, and there was repentance and a turning from this sin. Now, we, he doesn't tell us what the sin is. This is what we assume it is. We assume the sin was related to the fact that there were some men who came into the church at Corinth and began to badmouth Paul and say, basically, Paul's not a real apostle, and the Christ he presented to you is not the real Christ. And these outsiders who came in and tried to take over this church, there were a few who listened to them, at least one man and he rose up in the church, and he began to uh, propose this view of Paul to the church. And instead of being confronted, they let the guy speak. Now, it's really hard if someone stands up in a meeting like this and begins to propagate some truth that you know is not true. It's hard for us to just confront this person and say, you need to sit down and be quiet. We had this happen once at uh, Valley Bible Church years, many years ago. This group came in, and we could tell who they were because of the way they were dressed. And they came in, and they would just kind of begin to move among all the people and try to get everybody's attention, and they wanted to propagate a false doctrine. And so we had to confront them and tell them that they weren't welcome here because they were teaching another Christ and another gospel. That's hard. And so this church at Corinth many of them just went silent as this guy began to propagate these false views about Christ and about the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul didn't have a, a weak conscience. It's, he didn't have a problem when people got angry with him. But he loved these people, and he wanted to have ministry in their lives. And see, he did not want them to be carried away by false teaching. He wanted them to continue to believe the truth. And so he writes this strong letter and sends it with Titus. And now word gets to Paul. He meets up with Titus, and Titus says, they received your rebuke, and they've repented. This, this chapter here, 2 Corinthians 7, is probably as more in it about repentance than any other section of the New Testament. Repentance is important. The Old Testament word for repentance, the Hebrew word, is one of the most used words in the Old Testament. It appears over a thousand times in the Old Testament. Now, it isn't always used for, for the kind of repentance we're talking about, but the word repentance in the Old Testament meant to turn or to return. It means you're going in the wrong direction, and repentance was you turned and you went in the right direction. We come to the New Testament and repentance is used over and over again. It's a prominent theme in the preaching of the gospel. Uh, when Jesus came on the scene, he began to preach repentance. You need to repent and turn back to God. 
He wanted it to be preached in, in his name to all the nations. In Luke 24, he commands his followers to do that. Go into all the world and preach repentance in my name, that they would turn from their false thinking and their false gods and back to the real, true, and living God. Peter proclaimed uh, the call. He had a call of repentance in both his, his first two sermons, Acts 2 and Acts 3. He calls people to repent. Now, repent doesn't mean simply to be sorry. You know how it is when uh, somebody's little child kicks you in the shins, and then the parent says, tell him you're sorry. That's not enough, is it? I can remember telling somebody I was sorry, and they said, yeah, how's the rest of your family? You're a sorry, sorry bunch. <laughs> um, so repentance is more than being sorrowful, although sorrow has something to do with it, which we'll look at. But repentance means to turn. Paul spoke of repentance before philosophers. Remember in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, and he preached repentance? And this, this group had never heard the Old Testament. They didn't know, they didn't, had never heard the Scriptures before. But Paul calls them to repentance, to change their mind, and turn from the God they are serving to the true and living God. And then in chapter 26, when he's standing before King Agrippa, he preaches repentance to the king. <laughs> he tells him this is what he's been sent to do, is to preach this message of repentance. You can't really preach the gospel of Christ without repentance. It's a call to repent. It isn't works. It's not earning something. It's just the, it is what brings us to faith. We turn from the, the lie that we're believing, and we turn and we believe the truth. And there needs to be this repentance. But the other thing is, is the New Testament, uh, we're constantly called to repentance as believers. Because guess what? I know this is going to really surprise you. But as a Christian, you can get to thinking wrongly. You can begin to develop some assumptions about life and to have thought patterns that are totally inconsistent with who God is and who you are in your relationship with him. And so we are called to repent. So you can't really preach the gospel of Christ without this call to repent. But in this text today, uh, we'll find out what repentance really is, how it's produced. What is it that really produces repentance? And what are some of the indications that repentance has occurred? How do you tell when true repentance has actually happened? He's going to tell us this in this second, in second Corinthians chapter 7. So the first thing we want to do is we want to think about what the definition of repentance is. Uh, as I said, the Old Testament word for repentance is a word that means to turn or to return. In the New Testament, the word that's used means to think again, to change your way of thinking. Bob Dylan has a song in which is, is during his Christian era uh, where he testifies, I changed my way of thinking, I stopped being influenced by fools. That's repentance. And that's what repentance is. It's thinking again. That's literally what the word means. Metanoia it means to think again. It means to turn your thinking back to the right way. It's very easy, isn't it? It's easy for us to begin believing things that are totally inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, when I have trouble in life, uh, it's easy for me to forget that God has told me in the scriptures that he always uses our troubles for a good purpose. He always uses our troubles for this good purpose in our life of conforming us into the image of Christ. But sometimes we don't catch that until we get down the road a little ways. After we've whined and whimpered and 
complained, and then all of a sudden we realize, oh, okay, now I get it. I know why God allowed me to go through that. I really needed that. But usually I don't get that until I've been down the road a little ways. I don't know about you. Usually it takes me a while to come to my senses and realize I had a completely wrong way of thinking in my response to the trial that God brings me through. But repentance isn't just sorrow. In fact, the misconceptions of repentance are basically these, that it's sorrow. There's two different words in the New Testament that are very closely related. They almost sound like one another, metanoia and metamelomai. I know you're going to remember that. But the one means repentance. The other just means to have sorrow. Guess who had real sorrow and then hanged himself? Judas. Judas was full of sorrow because he saw that Jesus was condemned and he was, and he was crucified. So he went back to the priests and he wanted to give his money back, the silver back. And they refused to take it. But it says he was so full of sorrow, not for the fact that he had sinned. He was full of sorrow because it turned into a big mess. Uh, I've talked to so many people who've made really bad decisions in life and messed their life up, and now they have great sorrow about that decision. They found out what seemed so tempting that would be so good they chose to do, and it ended up just draining their life of joy. See, that's worldly sorrow. That's the kind of sorrow that Judas had. It's the kind of sorrow that Paul is going to call worldly sorrow. It works death. It's what makes you feel shame at times. Like you don't, want to re- you don't really want people to know about this, that you've done such a thing. But that's not repentance. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we just read, nine, verses 9 through 11 shows that repentance is the outcome of sorrow, a particular kind of sorrow. Repentance is change, a change of mind. It's turning from unbelief to belief in the living Christ. Some understand repentance to be a converted life, but Acts 3.19, uh, there we're told in this message by Peter that he says, repent and be converted. That conversion is the result of repentance. Re- conversion, the change of life, the transformation of life follows Repentance. But the order is actually that godly sorrow works repentance, and repentance works a changed life, a transformed life. So the proper definition of repentance is to think again or to change your way of thinking. In fact, I want to show you an example of repentance that's so clear. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You'll turn there first. I'd like you to turn there because I'd like you to mark it up in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where Paul is describing what happened to the Thessalonians when the gospel came to them. And he was the one who brought it. And he says, this is what I hear from people who have observed what happened to you when the gospel came to you. And this is what they say. They say, they report what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols. That's repentance. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who is rescuing us from the wrath to come. Three things there. I remember this little outline of First Thessalonians 9 and 10 from uh, college. And I know you'd never guess this, but college was 50 years ago. 
But I remember sitting in a chapel service and a guy was preaching this, and this was his outline. He said, this is, what, this is true conversion. It's a transformation of life, a vision of the task, because they turned to serve, and an expectation of the Lord. Transformation of life, vision of the task, and expectation of the Lord. That's the evidence of true conversion. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God. John Calvin said that the unbeliever's heart, all of our hearts before we came to Christ, were idol factories. They're no longer idol factories since you've been born again because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. It doesn't mean you are not troubled by idols because John says, keep yourselves from idols. So it's a danger. It's a danger of putting your trust in something other than Christ. This world's in a lot of trouble, isn't it? And guess what? No government, no military, no economy can solve it. The only one who can solve it is Jesus Christ. Vote your conscience, but recognize that Jesus is the only king who's going to reign on this earth and bring absolute peace. And that's what we wait for. We are anxious for him to come. We look forward to Christ's coming. Now, that is true repentance, a turning from our idols to serve the living and true God. And an idol is anything that you are, you are trusting like you should only trust God. You know those things through life, we, we start fixating on certain things. Man, if I had that, that would really be wonderful. That would change everything, wouldn't it? And then you get that thing, and about the fourth payment on it, you realize it hasn't changed your life, except it's put you in debt. So we can, it's easy for us to become idolatrous in that sense. Paul says it, craving things that for, in order to make ourselves happy is idolatry. It's idolatry. And it will get your thinking off track. And this is what Paul is confronting in this passage. Now, the next question is, what, what is it that produces repentance? This is pretty important because I have three children and, and ten grandchildren. In fact, there's one of my grandchildren back there and two of my great-grandchildren. And uh, you, know how it is, you know how it is raising children? How <clears throat> there are times that you're seeing they're going down the wrong path and you want them to turn and go on the right path? what has to happen is repentance. And so it's good for us to understand how repentance, what produces repentance in the heart and life? What brings us to repentance? Well, notice in this passage, it is godly sorrow that produces repentance. If you notice in, let me get back to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, if you notice in verse, in verse 9, for the sorrow that is according to God, that is godly sorrow, produces repentance. It produces repentance without regret. I love that. It's without regret. And it leads to salvation. But the sorrow of this world, it produces death. And that's what happened to, that's what happened to a Judas, a perfect example of that. He had worldly sorrow. And so what did he do? He hung himself. Instead of it producing joy, instead of it producing salvation, it produced death. So 
it's, it's not simply sorrow, but sorrow that's godly, sorrow that, the, that God produces, because there is a sorrow of this world. Now, the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow in, in this text, if you notice, worldly sorrow is selfish kind of sorrow. If you go back and read, well, I'm not going to turn you there, but in Matthew 27, when it tells about Judas being filled with sorrow for what he had done, he was sorrowful because it didn't turn out like he thought. It was no benefit to him. And so he regretted. And it doesn't use the word repentance. It uses the word for sorrow, metamelomai. He was sorrowful. He didn't repent. In fact, he would rather die than to stand before people and for them to know what he had done. And so he committed suicide. So it isn't just sorrow that produces repentance. That's why I would advise you as parents, don't force your children to stand there and say to a person, sorry, when you know they don't mean it. Make them repent. And then, and then ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. If I've sinned against you, I need to come to you and say, my brother, I've sinned against you, and I need your forgiveness. Now, you can grant it or not grant it but I can't make you. It doesn't do any good for me to say, hey, sorry. I say sorry a lot, but that's not repentance. What repentance is changing your mind. And, and that's what did not happen, for example, with Judas. Godly sorrow comes from seeing God. How do I know that? Well, I know it from several passages. One you heard this morning, Isaiah 6. Where Isaiah, what was it that caused him to say, I repent in dust and ashes? Well, that was Job who said that. And the same, same cause, though. You know what the cause was? I, I wanted to read Isaiah 6 because in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord. When you come to John chapter 7, it tells us that the glory of the Lord that he saw was the glory of the Son of God, the Messiah. When you see the glory of Christ, it will bring you to repentance. When you look in the mirror and see what a bum you are and, and what the mistake you made, that may cause worldly sorrow, but it's not going to necessarily cause godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when you see Christ and you see that what you've done is that you have rejected the true and living God, the one who actually laid down his life for you. And when that happens, there's repentance. In other words, godly sorrow is when you're more concerned about God than yourself. You know, about the great, you know about the judgment seat of Christ. You, that, that term is used of the time when believers are going to stand before Christ and he's going to judge your works. And, it's, and there's several places in the New Testament that talks about it. I don't know about you, but as a kid, I used to think of that, and I thought, wow, that is so scary. I'm going to stand. Everybody's going to see this, and he's going to show on a big screen all my sins. That'd be horrible, wouldn't it? It'd be horrible for you, I know. And it'd be horrible for me, too. <laughs> but that's not what he's talking about. He's going to judge our works. Did we, did we do ministry for the glory of Christ? Did we serve people for the glory of Christ? And if we did, we'll be rewarded for those works. If we didn't, those works will just be burned up, and we won't be embarrassed by them. But John says we ought to live in such a way that when Christ appears, we won't shrink back at his coming. Praise the Lord, Jesus is here. Not, oh no, <laughs> oh no, 
everybody's going to know. It's a horrible thing to have hidden sin. It's like, um, it's, it just eats your gut out. It just eats your soul away. I'm an expert on this. It's just, it tears you up. And so uh, repentance, godly sorrow, causes us to, to be concerned about our sin because what, how it is relating to God. It's my relationship to God. See, that's why it's called sin. Uh, in some translations, some modern translations, paraphrases, they'll translate the word sin by wrongdoing. But the reason it's called sin, hamartia, is because there is something attached to it. It is recognizing that this act that I did, this activity, this attitude, was a manifestation that I don't love and respect God. And there's guilt involved to it. And so sin is a horrible thing to have hidden in your life. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you how to everybody stand up and confess all your sins. Uh, we're told clearly in 1 John 1, we ought to confess our sins to him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all sin. And to, I mean, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we ought to, we ought to live with very, uh, our repentance ought to come quickly. Because, because repentance is a gift from God. Romans 2.4 says, don't you know that the kindness of God leads to repentance? You get that? The kindness of God leads to repentance. It's a gift from God. You know the story about Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Remember, he was going from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and he had to go through, him and his disciples, they went through uh, Samaria, they come to Sychar, and he is exhausted, he's tired. This, the eternal Son of God is tired. The creator and sustainer of all things is tired. And he's hungry. And so he sits down at the well and the disciples go to get him some food. And as he's sitting there, the woman from Sychar comes out to draw water. And this woman was heavy laden with sins. And so Jesus starts talking to her. You know what he's doing? He is going to lead this woman to repentance. And repentance is the gift of God that, that changes her into a worshiper of the living and true God. You realize that? That that's, what, that's, that's the gift of God, that he sent Christ to the world to make us worshipers? Why is that a gift? Because that's what you were made for. And you never, ever, 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 ever will find fullness and fulfillment in life until you become a worshiper of the God who created you for himself. And when you come to be a worshiper, you come to have the, the most glorious kind of relationship that you could ever possibly have with a heavenly father and a savior who died for you and a spirit who lives in you and empowers you to, to live for him and to worship him. So worship is, and in a sense, that's why repentance is a gift because it turns you from worshiping the wrong thing to worshiping the true and living God who deserves your worship. So repentance is a turning. Worldly sorrow produces regret. Godly sorrow is without regret. It produces repentance and salvation. The word he uses for salvation here means to be made whole. There's so many people that you run into every day that have no inner wholeness. They're so conflicted. This world's so confusing, and their lives are confusing. But what Christ did, he came into the world in order to make us whole and to deliver us from evil, to deliver us from that which endangers us.
But the word he uses here, soteria, means he makes you whole. Repentance makes you whole. Um, a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, when you are not walking in fellowship with Christ, it kind of turns you into a crazy person. I mean, sometimes people think Christians are schizophrenic almost because if they're living at a distance from, from Christ, if they're living in a way that totally ignore his, ignores him in order for them to get what they want, and they know that they couldn't do that if they walk with Christ, it turns them inside out, upside down. And the thing, the cure for that is repentance. It's repentance. And it comes through godly sorrow. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance unto salvation without regret. Um, the gospel of Christ is designed to produce godly sorrow leading to repentance. You see, seeing the glory of Christ is what produces godly sorrow in you. How do you where do you see the glory of Christ? Isaiah saw it in the temple in Isaiah 6. Where you see it is the same as what Paul says. And remember in, uh, was it 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, when he says that the God who said, let there be light, shined his light in my heart so that I saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. That was on the road to Damascus. Remember that? Now, there were some real physical things going on there. There was a bright light that blinded him, but there was something more deeper. And that was that the glory of Christ shone through into his heart, and all of a sudden he knew it was true. The most common testimony I hear from people who come to faith in Christ is that there was a moment in which all of a sudden they realized they actually believed in Christ. They believed the Bible's testimony, the Father's testimony about Christ. And they knew he was exactly what the Bible said. And they began to experience a freedom. See, that's what Paul is talking about. This is what, this is what repentance brings. And it also brings it in the life of Christians when we're wandering off the path. We're really not walking by faith. We're not exalting Christ. We're not being controlled by the love of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Are you being controlled by the love of Christ? That is Christ's love for you. That's what Paul said. He said, uh, we, we are controlled by the love of Christ because we've concluded this, that one died for all. That's the gospel. And therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So repentance is really important, not only for a person to come to Christ and receive salvation, but for the believer to live in fellowship with Christ throughout life. Changing our mind. And like Paul says in Romans 2.4, I mentioned this a while ago, he says, or do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? You know, there's a, there's a method of evangelism that some of you have watched. It's called um, The Way of the Master. And uh, it's very interesting. The guy that put it together is really a sharp guy, and there's some value in it. But there's also something you need to realize. Trying to prove to a person that they're guilty won't bring them to faith in Christ. They have to see Christ. Now, they will suffer a real sense of conviction about their own sinfulness when they see Christ. Every person in the Bible, if you can, how many people, can you think of people in the Bible who came face to face with God in their life? And you remember how they acted? Well, we heard one this morning, Isaiah, when he saw the living Christ, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ in the temple, 
And he falls on his face, basically, and says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, you've got to understand, this guy's about 20 years old at this time, and he's been a righteous young man. He takes God very seriously. In fact, the reason he went into the temple was because he was so disturbed by the fact that a great king, King Isaiah, had died. And he had failed before he died. And it really bothered Isaiah. But he goes in and says, what does God want to do? I want to show you who's really on the throne. It isn't King Isaiah. It's the living God. And in this case, we find out in John 14, it was the living Christ. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. So when you, when you want to share the gospel with somebody, I, you know, I understand sometimes it works to say to a person, tell them what the Ten Commandments are and say, you've broken every one of these. And, you, and they say, I don't, I've never sinned. I had a person tell me that one time, I've never sinned. And so you go through the Ten Commandments, and then what he does is he says, uh, it says, thou shalt not steal. Have you ever taken a pencil from work? And everybody says, well, yeah. Then you're a thief. But that is not what will drive a person to repentance. What drives a person to repentance is seeing Christ. Now, they, here's the problem, i got to admit to you, as a, as a Christian wants to bear witness to Christ. The problem is, my life and the way I live in relationship to this person, if they can't see the evidence that I actually believe on Christ, then my testimony is going to have very little strength or power. So I might, you know, maybe that I want to make them feel real guilty so they'll have sorrow, but the sorrow that they'll have is worldly sorrow. Shame, which leads to death. But when they see Christ, not only do they see the fact that they are sinful and He is righteous, but they see the fact that He died for them. And He loves them. And He manifested His love. You know, in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, in the King James, it says, God recommends His love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word recommends is not a bad translation. That's a pretty good translation of this word. But get this, it's a present tense. So what is he saying? God is continually recommending his love to you, reminding you that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. When you were, when you were a rebel and you wanted nothing to do with God, Christ died for you. You see, when that message gets through, and just because you tell it doesn't mean it gets through, but when the, when the God who said, let there be light, causes light to shine into a heart that's darkened, and they see the truth of who Christ is, then they will experience godly sorrow. And so I figure in raising kids, I was just thinking about this because I'm still trying to figure it out. I, I was thinking, you know, probably the best thing you can do in raising children is to keep pointing them to Christ, the glory of Christ. They need to see His glory. And if I live in contradiction to that, then there's going to be a problem, isn't there? I don't mean that to be a first-class condition, since I don't live according to that, but it may be at times. But our children need to see the glory of Christ. Everyone needs to see the glory of Christ. And what you can pray for is, God, you're the God who said, let there be light, and you can shine your light of the glory of Christ into the hearts of my children and my grandchildren so that their eyes will be open to who he is. Now, it's true, they're going to experience godly sorrow about their own sin, but they're also going to experience a great joy of forgiveness when they put their trust in Christ and begin to walk with him. So this is what he's called us to. Now, what are the marks of, of repentance? Well, he gives us several here in this text. 
he mentions several, and this is what they are, if you, if you notice. Um, the first one is earnestness. King James uh, translates it carefulness. This can be defined as uh, in, in seeing the immediate need to turn, to turn to God. You know, you ever give advice to somebody, you know, you really ought to uh, go have your car checked. There's something wrong. I can hear the, the rods knocking. You ought to go see a, a mechanic and have them check this out. And they say, yeah, you know, I'll do that next week. I travel 150 miles a day, but next week I'll go see a mechanic. And you're thinking, you're going to blow that car up. Well, this word earnestness means I want to do it now. I... My eyes have been opened. I see the truth of who Christ is, and I want him now. I want his forgiveness now. All the examples of, or many of the examples in the book of Acts of conversions demonstrate this kind of diligence, that people immediately turn. They immediately say, what must I do? The, the Philippian jailer, remember that? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And what did he do? He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's earnestness. The second thing he says, it brings, it's seen by vindication of yourselves or clearing of yourselves. It means to clear yourself of blame for the living according to idols, but turning from idols to the living God. It's a quick, they're quick to, to stop doing what's wrong and recognizing guilt and responding to the offer of forgiveness. That's what repentance will bring. And then indignation. He says repent, true repentance is manifested in indignation. That involves kind of an anger, moral outrage towards the sin that has been dominating my heart. And then fear. You're fearful lest the sin should be repeated and not entirely removed. I want, I want God to change my heart. You want God to change your heart, don't you? You want God to have control of your heart. And then he says, what longing, vehement desire, a fervent wish to be right in God's eyes. I'm by nature a people pleaser. I want people to like me. Uh, but I know in my mind, in my brain, in my, I understand based upon the word of God that what's really important is pleasing God, not people. I, and I, and I'll, be, I'll survive people not liking me. I know who you are. <laughs> and, but I won't survive not being in a relationship with the living God. I need him. So, and then he says, zeal, eagerness. You're ready to turn to God. And avenging of wrong, that's just vindication. Uh, you know, readiness to do what, what I ought to do. If I stole uh, something out of your house the last time I was there, and I repented, I would bring it back to you. And maybe I could do like the law commanded that I add 20% to it. So if I stole a $100 bill, I'd bring you back $120. I didn't, though. Uh, but that's what the idea is, avenging of wrong. Uh, and so these are the signs of true repentance. Not apathy, not half-heartedness but a desire to do works appropriate to repentance. That's the way Paul puts it when he's talking to King Agrippa. There are works that are appropriate for repentance, to repentance. It shows you you've truly repented. 
Now, now I just want to drive this home to your heart. We need to ask ourselves, you need to ask yourself. I, I, I'm always afraid to use a second person. I'd rather talk about myself than say, follow my example, but let me just use a second person. You. You need to ask yourself, have you received this gift of repentance from the Father? Has he given you this gift? Can you see the signs that, that he's mentioned here that really show a changed mind? That you really have turned from your sin to God the Father and our Lord? Has that happened? Is it happening now? If I haven't yet obeyed the gospel, I haven't repented. And even if I am a believer and I become deaf to God's word, I'm in need of repentance because I'm forfeiting the full blessings of the gospel in my life. That means that you need a healthy dose of godly sorrow, and it's brought by having your eyes open to Christ. It isn't by preachers beating you up. It isn't by you listening to some really raving, uh, yelling, screaming preacher who makes you feel guilty. That comes from your eyes being open to the glory of Christ. Pray for that. And parents, pray for that in your children. Pray for that in your children, that they would come to repent, because that's what's going to set them free. That's, going to, that's what's going to turn them into worshipers of the true and living God. I mean, think of this. If you get rightly related to God, you're rightly related to everything that is going to exist forever. Now, there's some things that exist right now that are not going to exist forever, but everything that's going to exist forever, you're going to be rightly related to that when you repent. And you turn to God. And so I need to remember these things because um, a healthy dose of godly sorrow reveals God's love for me. My eyes are open to God's love for me. What it means that he has demonstrated that he's continually recommending his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And my sin of trusting the one, not trusting the one who died for me. I guess, uh, you know, sometimes you wonder, why do we always have so much trouble? I heard this guy speaking the other day. There's a movie coming out I'd like you all to go see. It's called The Insanity of God. It's coming on the 30th of August. And I told you about this book I read called The Insanity of God and The Insanity of Obedience. He was a missionary, uh, and he was in Somalia for nine years or so. Now, when he went to Somalia, you could only go in with a relief organization, which he went in with because you couldn't go in as a missionary. His family lived in uh, Kenya, and he would go over into Somalia and uh, try to influence uh, people to come to Christ. He had a whole crew that worked with him. They were all Muslims. And, um, and he was there that whole time. And he said, what I found happened to me was when I left America, I left as a New, Co as a New Testament Christian. You know, I, I walk with Jesus. When I got to so I'm Somalia and I started living there, I started feeling like an Old Testament I felt like I was living in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. I'm telling God, why don't you kill these people? They're killing your people every day. There were 150 Christians in Somalia when he got there. And when he left, 13 years later, there were four. You know what happened to them? They were killed. And so he said, I was angry every day. I couldn't figure out why God wouldn't just, you know, bring these people to the end so they couldn't persecute Christians anymore. You're all aware of the statistics that more people have come to Christ in the last, uh, I guess it's a, uh, 
several decades, I don't know, maybe it's 50 years or so, more Christians have come to faith than all the time before in church history. And there are more Christians being persecuted today than ever before in church history. And so he said, uh, here I am, I'm just wanting to hate these people. And then I open the Bible, and here's Jesus saying, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. Love your enemy? That's what Jesus says. Now, it's easy for us to do that because we're all nice people. We love each other. We can even love our enemies. You know, people that do us, say bad things about us. Uh, we can still love them. But if you were in Mogadishu and you saw Christians being killed every day, he said in one day he lost four friends, four Christian friends. They never found their bodies, and so they did their funerals without the bodies. And he said, I became so angry with God, I couldn't believe that he would allow this to happen. So he comes home, he's totally despondent, and his students at the university where he taught talked him into going on a worldwide tour and finding, going to every country where persecution was. And guess what? You'll never believe this, but this, I checked this out, it's true. Seventy percent of Christians who are actively following Christ in the world, in other words, you can measure it by the fact the way they live, they follow Christ, 70% of them are in a place where there's persecution. Persecution. See, it's, it's easier to say, love your enemy in America. It's tough to say it when you're living in a land where Christians are being slaughtered. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You see, that's, that's the glory of the gospel. That's the glory of the gospel. And that's why this election year is not going to save America. I don't care who gets in. I mean, I care, but it doesn't matter. It's not going to save America. The only one who can save anybody is Christ. And guess what? You're an ambassador of Christ. You're a representative of Christ. You've been anointed with the Spirit to speak for Christ to people. But you have to be in fellowship with him in order to do it. Your heart has to be captured by the love of Christ in order for you to do it. And that may take repentance. And repentance comes from godly sorrow that is produced by your eyes being open to the glory of Christ. I want to close with this. This is from, from Peter's first two sermons in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as our Lord, our, the Lord our God shall call to himself. Every person who's called by the Spirit comes to faith in Christ, receives the Spirit. And then he says in chapter 3, another sermon that Paul, this is how he expresses it, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Imagine how God could use us as a people. Here we are, just a little small community of believers in a place that nobody even knows. When you tell them you're from Nyson, if you are from Nyson, they don't have any clue where that's at. It's just a little backwater country place. And yet, you're a child of the king.
And God wants to use us, each one of us, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So if you need to repent, repent. Get right with him. If you've never repented and you don't know Christ, I would appeal to you from the bottom of my heart. It, it will change your whole world completely when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do, just ask some people around you. Ask some Christians. Okay, so what is this all about? If I were to put my faith in Christ, so what would that produce? Well, first of all, you couldn't just put your faith in Christ. The Spirit of God's got to open your eyes. But when you do, it'll change your life. Amen? And God can begin to use you in a glorious way. Let's pray. Let me pray for you. Our Father, we bow our hearts before you now. We thank you for the gift of repentance. I thank you, Father, that you've opened our eyes to the glory of Christ. I thank you that we can live controlled by the love of Christ. We want to be effective servants of Christ. We want to be effective ambassadors of Christ. And so we ask you, Father, right now, that you would turn our hearts, that we would repent. We would turn to you and to you only and trust you. Help us to believe the gospel today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.